Most people today regard Cherokee as the sole representative of the southern branch of the Iroquoian family of languages. But why are Cherokee and Mohawk not mutually intelligible? Why does Mohawk have two or three times as many words as Cherokee? Why does Cherokee have a radically different syntax and grammar from Mohawk? Compared to Mohawk, Cherokee is so stripped down and simple, it comes across as pidgin English. The lack of overlap extends to basic words like the names of numbers. I'm Pete Ferrand, and this is The Time Traveler's Suitcase. What you just heard was one of the puzzling problems posed by an investigation into the origins of the Cherokee. DNA Consultants has been looking into Cherokee genetic diversity for well over 10 years now. What emerges is an indication that the origins are quite diverse and quite ancient, coming from many different places. And this information is at variance with what a lot of people traditionally believed. In a moment, we'll hear of origin arguments based not only on language, but clans, anthropology, archaeology, and the cultural connections to places like Egypt. This edition of the Time Traveler's Suitcase is drawn from Donald and Teresa Yates' book, Cherokee DNA Studies, Real People Who Prove the Geneticists Wrong. DNA Consultants is the sponsor of the Time Traveler's Suitcase. It's a company that has been helping people find their ancestry for more than 15 years. The founder, Donald Yates, has written a number of popular books that have now become audio titles, like Cherokee DNA Studies, Real People Who Prove the Geneticists Wrong. This is the audiobook featured in the first few episodes. His pledge, then and now, was to treat every customer's family history with the same care as his own. That idea was behind the DNA Fingerprint Plus Cherokee Ancestry Test. And now, Primeval DNA. Based on the discoveries of Israeli-American geneticist Eran el it is the world's first ancient DNA test series. Could you match both modern-day Israeli Jews and ancient Israelites? It's possible, but it's only possible at DNA Consultants. Visit us online at www.dnaconsultants.com. Check out the latest in DNA research on modern-day populations and ancient peoples like Vikings, early American Indians, Stone Age Europeans, and others. You'll be delighted and amazed. We cannot solve our problems with the same thinking we used when we created them, remarked Albert Einstein. Applying that dictum to Cherokee DNA studies, we can easily suspect that the Cherokee people have been problematized with outmoded colonialist thinking. DNA, that great arbiter of collective and personal mysteries, has failed to cut the Gordian knot not because its tools lack effectiveness, but because they have not been applied. The knot itself is an unreal phantom of myths and illusions, prejudice and superstition, politics and propaganda. DNA Consultants' Cherokee investigations over more than 10 years consistently produced a picture of Cherokee genetic diversity that seemed to have an ancient source, one split between the old and new worlds. 
There were Asiatic types, notably haplogroup B, alongside East Mediterranean haplogroups J, T, and U, all with impeccable credentials. In 2012, I published Old World Roots of the Cherokee, which presented all the intertwining and converging linguistic, genetic, anthropological, archaeological, and historical arguments why I posited that the origins of the Cherokees rested at least partially on a 3rd century BCE expedition across the Pacific from Ptolemaic Egypt. Appendix E contained the haplogroups and genealogy of Phase I participants supporting an anomalous origin for non-ABCDX Cherokees. Appendix H listed evidence assembled from various modern and ancient references pointing to a Greek presence in North and South America including two important inscriptions made public for the first time, the Possum Creek Stone and Clay County Cave Entrance, falsely reported as historical and sequoian, but actually at least a thousand years older. I also re-examined the Thruston Tablet, which shows a Cherokee chief in a Greek hoplite's stallion-crested helmet and carrying a spear giving away his daughter, a large silver Star of David around her neck, in a morganatic marriage ceremony to another chief. It was a bold explanation for what Mac Bettis has described as the Cherokee Enigma. Let us call it the Old World Origins Thesis. But judgment of the whole must flow from acceptance or rejection of the constituent parts. For the benefit of those who do not read long academic monographs, let us reprise here some of the main arguments and pieces of individual evidence behind the Old World Origins thesis, especially as they may bear on and be supported by DNA. The Clan Argument The Cherokee Seven Clans are unique, specific only to that tribe. They are Wolf, Aniwahia, Bird, Annie Chisqua, Deer, Annie Cowie, Twister, Annie Kiloe, Wild Potato, Annie Kotikewa, Panther, Annie Sahoni, and Paint, Annie Woti. Old World Roots relied heavily on a dusty resource in the Smithsonian, Notes on Six Cherokee Gentes. The original card files were started by Albert S. Gatchett and include notations by James Mooney and J. N. B. Hewitt, recording information from Cherokee medicine man John Axe, among others. The holding also incorporates manuscript materials by J. T. Garrett, interpreted by John D. Strange, Allegan Slagle, and Mac Bettis. Photocopies were kindly shared with me by Bettis. Also, having a hand in this priceless resource for Cherokee history was Herman Viola, director of the Smithsonian's Anthropological Archives, who facilitated access of these materials for Bettis in 1974. Of these gentes, the people of the bird, wolf, and deer are all traced to an original bird clan. The original name of this clan was Red Flicker, Sapsucker, Woodpecker, or Anichaliena, or Chunilyana, meaning deaf clan. Cherokee's testing as being A, C, and D often have matches to Mexico, Central America, 
and the U.S. Southwest, testimony to the Asiatic roots of these clans. Although Wolf is the largest clan today, that position was occupied by the Paint Clan before the large-scale disruptions beginning at the end of the 18th century. Traditionally, war chiefs came from the Wolf Clan and peace chiefs, or second chiefs, from the Paint. Bird Clan members often provided priests, medicine men, speakers, and ceremonial officiants, while Deer Clan members seemed to be prominent among the scribes and intellectuals of the tribe. Chief John Ross, 1790-1866, was Bird Clan, descended from the strict female line from Gigui, Gigau, beloved or warwoman, wife of William Shorey, a Scotsman. He was only one-eighth American Indian, though he became the Cherokee's longest-serving principal chief. Sika Tower, the oldest and one of the most important informants in the Payne-Buttrick papers, was also Bird Clan. The other clans have divergent histories. We will not review the arguments identifying the Twister or Longhair clan with B lineages and Polynesian origins, as they are hard to do justice to in summaries. Suffice it to say that the clan name literally commemorates Gilolo, the land where the earliest ancestors of the Hawaiians came from, identified by later Spanish, Dutch, and English navigators as the Moluccas in the Indonesian archipelago. Elizabeth Tassel was one of the first Cherokee women to wed an English frontier official, Scottish trader Ludovic Grant, around 1726. Several of our Cherokee subjects trace their mitochondrial DNA back to her. More than one of them remember the original Twister clan affiliation, which their family never lost. It seems that the Anikotikewa, or Wild Potato Clan, just like the Twister clan, exists only among the Cherokee. This clan seems to reflect Cherokee migrations through South America. The name of this clan, Kotikewa, pronounced approximately Katigua, appears to be a corruption of Quechua, the original name of the Andean people we know today as the Incas. Cornelius Dougherty, an Indian trader at Kiowee in Lower Cherokee country, married Aniwaki, a daughter of Chief Moitoy II, Amatohii of the Wild Potato Clan. Another Wild Potato Clan matriarch was Susanna, or Sonikui, who married Thomas Cordery. Their descendants included Sarah Cordery, who married John Rogers, and many enrolled Cherokees by the names Vickery, Harris, McNair, Mosley, and Collins. The Nighthawk Society of Redbird Smith emphasized genealogies and traditions of the Wild Potato Clan. What about the Paint Clan? Aniwoti. Paint people seems, without question, to be the customary term for Phoenicians, whose ethnonym or word for themselves was Kenai, Canaanites. This name is rendered in Native America as Kanaw, a tributary of the Ohio. By tradition, paint clan members were doctors and hunters, Kanati from the Greek Gennadi, noblemen, keepers of history, Tecano from Greek Tinchana, events and prophecy, and masters of protocol, diplomacy, and ceremony. Peace chiefs and ukus, owls or wise men in the Greek model, Hopi Mangui, owl, chief, were often chosen from their ranks. The paint clan was never called anything but by its true name, paint, wodi. No other clans were combined with it, 
and it alone had the privilege of intermarriage between clan members. One of its trademarks was mask-making, a sign of its origins in the ancient Mediterranean world of theatrical performances and religious spectacles. In Phase I and II of anomalous Cherokee mitochondrial DNA lineages, many paint clan descendants proved to be haplogroup U2E asterisk, or X. Cooper relatives of mine in North Carolina still speak of belonging to the paint clan. By all accounts, the panther or blue paint clan is almost extinct. Its members were known as dangerous men and night people. Its Cherokee name is Anisahoni or Sakaniki, which means they sit in the ashes until they turn blue-gray. Because West African medicine men are distinguished by white or blue face paint created from ashes, one might speculate that this minor clan could represent the African component in the Cherokee melting pot. Tribal traditions emphasize that the Cherokee include black people as well as white, red, and yellow. There are two paint clans, and it may be that the larger red paint clan represents the original Phoenicians and the lesser blue paint fellow travelers that accompanied them, drawn from the teeming interior of the Carthaginian state. Red Man's Origin tells of twelve original clans, five of whom became separated from the Cherokee in their crossing of the Great Waters and subsequently lost. It would be jumping to an unwarranted conclusion to equate these with the twelve tribes of Israel. But Greek mythology is replete with dodecads, notably in the twelve Olympians. Greek and other Eastern Mediterranean societies used a duodecimal system of genealogies to account for one's personal lineage or clan descent. Another echo of Greek or Phoenician legends is contained in the account of how the white man hoodwinked the Cherokee and cheated them out of their land. Then the white strangers, which were supposed to be visitors from heaven and who were supposed to be such on account of their white skins, as the idea and emblem of white was purity and spirituality among the Cherokees, these strangers were taken to be such, asked that they be allowed a small piece of ground upon which to camp, cook, and sleep, it was charitably granted. These strangers were entertained by the Cherokee clans very charitably and food and other articles of comfort freely given to them. Then these strangers made known their desire and willingness to remain with the native Cherokee clans if they were allowed to purchase a small piece of ground upon which to camp and sleep. They made known to the tribe that they only needed a small piece of land about the size of a bullhide. This modest request was freely granted to the strangers and sold to them for a trifling consideration. The supposed heavenly strangers then cut one of the oxides which they had brought with them into a small string which they stretched around a square, enclosing several hundred square yards. This they claimed to be in accordance with the purchase agreement to which the tribe finally agreed, saying at the same time that they had been deceived. Other purchases of land were made for which a consideration was always given by the white heavenly strangers after the session of which the tribe always acknowledged that they had been deceived. Then the tribe finally came to the conclusion that this white stranger was from the opposite pole of the heavens and put on his white skin for the purpose of deceiving. Before coinage of currency, 3rd century BCE, ancient peoples either used barter or trade tokens, 
a standard type being the oxhide-shaped copper ingots or real-shaped metal pieces of the Phoenicians. The point of the story seems to be that the white invaders offered the Indians money and inflated the value of it. The same legend was told by the Phoenicians about their success in gaining the hinterlands of Carthage from the original native owners. The Linguistic Argument Language shift is an unreliable guide to demographic and genetic change, but the same cannot be said of its importance in genealogies. Several of the participants in our project remarked that as late as their parents' and grandparents' generation, the Cherokee language was spoken in the household. We see that as a sign of Cherokee culture and genetics surviving in those lines, despite the fact that they were no longer living with other Cherokees and, in fact, may have been unacknowledged by other Cherokees. It would also seem to imply a relatively low level of admixture. A participant in Phase 1 was Mary M. Garabrandt Brower, one of the 13 U. haplogroup subjects who had been told by other DNA testing companies they were plainly not of Cherokee descent because they didn't have the right haplogroup. My great-grandmother was Clarissa Green of the Cherokee Wolf Clan, said Garabrandt Brower. Her grandfather was a Cherokee chief, and my mother maintained the Cherokee language and rituals even though we moved to the Northeast. Is Cherokee the tribe's original language? Cherokee, the name both of the tribe and language, has never been satisfactorily etymologized. According to the author of a recent grammatical study of Oklahoma Cherokee, Brad Montgomery Anderson, there are several beliefs about the origin of the name Cherokee, but it appears that the word itself is not a native Cherokee word. In Old World Roots, we derive the word from corrupted Greek, along with a long list of other names, proper nouns, and verbs. Like all the other arguments in the book, the evidence for Greek words embedded in Cherokee must either be true or false. If such words as Cherokee, Amoitoi, Karanu, Kanati, Anecha, Tlanua, Tirihi, and the rest are not Greek, what are they? The first descriptions recorded by American traders, agents, and missionaries often compared the Cherokee they heard to the Greek language. The field ethnographer John McIntosh reported that Huron, a language related to Cherokee, shared grammatical peculiarities with Greek. As to the number and tenses, they have the same differences as the Greek in some languages spoken in the northeast of Asia. The action is expressed differently in respect to anything that has life and an inanimate thing. Thus, to see a man and to see a stone are two different verbs, and to make use of a thing that belongs to him who uses it, or to him to whom we speak, are also two different verbs. Cherokee makes many of the same syntactical distinctions. Most people today regard Cherokee as the sole representative of the southern branch of the Iroquoian family of languages. But why are Cherokee and Mohawk not mutually intelligible? Why does Mohawk have two or three times as many words as Cherokee? Why does Cherokee have a radically different syntax and grammar from Mohawk? Compared to Mohawk, Cherokee is so stripped down and simple it comes across as pidgin English. Are we misled by the fact that it is spoken so poorly and sporadically now as a second language? Why is two-thirds of its vocabulary non-cognate 
not sharing the same roots as Mohawk. The lack of overlap extends to basic words like the names of numbers. We suggested and continue to believe that present-day Cherokee is rather a result of a historically fixed relaxification process similar to that which gave birth to Yiddish in the Middle Ages. No one would claim that Yiddish, with its pervasive Hebrew vocabulary and Semitic pronunciation, is just another Germanic language like Dutch or Frisian or Anglo-Saxon. Nor would anyone theorize on the basis of linguistics alone that Central European Jews are primarily descended from Germanic tribes. The Archaeology Argument In comparison with other American Indian groups, the Cherokee possess no archaeology to speak of. The Pisgah phase, generally dated to between 1000 and 1500 CE, is the name assigned by archaeologists to prehistoric Cherokee culture in western North Carolina. But entries in handbooks are reluctant to see too much in the handful of sites excavated, such as the Warren Wilson and Garden sites. Following the Pisgah is the Kuala phase, 1500 to 1850 CE. Even this, however, does not yield a definite horizon for what is distinctively Cherokee. Whatever else they are, the Cherokee are an old tribe and were living somewhere continuously, if not where history discovered them in the 16th century. But archaeology is blind to any material trace of them before 1000. In Old World Roots, we draw attention to several signs of Cherokee antiquity in the records of excavations and rock inscriptions. These include the Thruston Tablet, Mississippian era or before, the Bat Creek Stone and associated Roman coins, 2nd century CE, Possum Creek Stone, BCE, Sosora drawings in a New Guinea cave, 3rd century BCE, Santiago inscription in Chile, dated internally August 5 of the 16th regnal year of Egyptian pharaoh Ptolemy Euergetes III, or 230 BCE, and extensive inscriptions in Greek and Hebrew on a Clay County, Kentucky cave entrance, perhaps 2nd century CE. Space forbids revisiting each of these key pieces of evidence for the long history of the Cherokee. To single out only one of them, though, is the Bat Creek Stone authentic, and does it tell the story of a Jewish zealot entombed in a Cherokee burial? Or is it a fake? Or has it been misinterpreted? Does it tell us anything about the Cherokees? When I went to see it in Knoxville, the museum staff in Knoxville would only hand you a photocopied list of articles about it and say its status along with the writing on it was controversial. Most of the other ancient inscriptions in my list fail even to achieve that obscurantist position. But they are not going away. On today's edition of the Time Traveler's Suitcase, we're listening to a chapter on the origins of the Cherokee from Donald and Teresa Yates' book, Cherokee DNA Studies, Real People Who Proved the Geneticists Wrong. The Cultural Anthropology Argument As with archaeology, so with anthropology. The Cherokee are accorded extremely short shrift, especially in the branch of anthropology focused on the study of cultural variation. The ignorance and neglect begins with their tribal name, clan system, and language, and goes on to a sweeping non-engagement on similarities and dissimilarities between them and other Indians in traits, 
social customs, religious ceremonies and beliefs, political organization, material culture, and lifeways. What is the meaning of the chunky stones prized by Cherokees and other southeastern Indians? Or the Cherokee ball play? Why are the little people alive in Cherokee folk belief as in no other tribe? Why do the Cherokee habitually and ritualistically go to water or sweat in winter lodges? Did a historical Cherokee, known as Sequoia, invent their syllabary? If he did, he is the only person in world history to have fathered a writing system single-handedly. What is the phoenix doing on the seal of the Cherokee Nation? Isn't it time to at least ask the questions, even if they are difficult of solution? When I published Old Souls in a New World as an abridgment of my work for a more general audience, I raised the possibility that the history of America's largest Indian nation is actually a polite modern fiction, one invented by anthropologists and other friends. I subtitled the book The Secret History of the Cherokee Indians. But the facts surrounding the Cherokee are not secret at all. They are as plain and obvious as the observations and opinions anyone makes and forms who gets to know the Cherokee people, or has more than a passing acquaintance with one of them, or is one of them, or has some of their blood flowing in their veins. Mac Bettis speaks of this eloquently in his foreword to Old World Roots. The Hopi Analogy Thomas Mills lived for many years on the Hopi Indian Reservation in northern Arizona, where he and his mother opened and operated the cultural center at Second Mesa. A close friend was White Bear, the traditionalist who helped Frank Waters compile The Book of the Hopi in 1963. Mills was on familiar terms with other elders, Kiva chiefs, and artisans. In 2001, he wrote a little book of his own called The Truth. It was an attempt to reconcile some of the conflicting answers he had received from his sources. How did a desert-dwelling, isolated people know of the Earth's spherical shape and rotation in space? What was the long journey in boats from across the sea they spoke of? And who were the ant people they took refuge with after the destruction of the first, second, and third worlds? Eventually, Mills felt he had some answers from Egyptian religion. He came to believe that the Hopi were Egyptians, old souls in Native America, charged with the task of praying for the safety of the world. The delicate balance of affairs in human destiny depended on a Hopi prayer feather, or paho. Paho seems to be an Egyptian word. Embedded in Hopi customs and rituals are apparently many traces of ancient old-world civilizations. I thought of a time several years ago when Hopi elders David Moa and Ronald Wadsworth came to give a talk at the university where I was teaching. I noticed David preferred to sleep on the floor of our guest room instead of the pull-out bed. That was quite Indian, of course, but his act of leaving a crust of bread on the piano bench when he departed was not. This practice is rooted in the ancient Greek religious gesture of offering bread and milk to the household gods in a strange home. Author Hamilton Tyler noted several Greek customs among the Pueblo Indians. The plinth-like figure of Masao evokes the armless guardian statues, or herms, used by the Greeks as boundary markers. Hermes is both god of roads and boundaries and conductor of the dead to the underworld. 
A number of students of Pueblo religion, Tyler admitted, have remarked that it was something like Greek religion. Yet, after uncovering astonishing analogies between the two religions, he concluded that there is no actual connection between these two gods who lived centuries apart and on different sides of the globe. Egyptians Abroad Egyptians have long been suspected of visiting the shores of America and even planting colonies here. Whether reached by east or west, the other hemisphere was regarded by them as the realm of Osiris, god of the underworld, as explained by Gunnar Thompson. From the vantage point of Egypt, the western Atlantic lies on the opposite side of the globe. Their expression, inverted waters, is an accurate description of the western Atlantic, and it confirms Egyptian knowledge of the Earth's spherical shape. Likewise, the realm of Osiris was known as the Underworld because it was located beneath Egypt on the spherical Earth. Between both worlds flowed the Two Ways Ocean River. Egyptian mariners traveled west to the realm of Osiris and returned to the Mediterranean via a Two Ways Ocean River flowing both directions the North Atlantic Current. Could the Egyptians have traveled to the realm of Osiris also by crossing the Pacific from Asia? Excited by the thought that there might be a real connection between the Hopi and the Egyptians, I compiled a list of Hopi words that seemed to have the same sound and meaning in Egyptian. Nearly all proved to be archaic terms relating to tribal ceremonies and religious history. The Hopi's main language is classified as Uto-Aztecan, a Native American linguistic phylum, but the formation of plurals with N and M points to Semitic or Afro-Asiatic affinities. Specialized religious terms in Hopi are relics or intrusions comparable evidently to fossilized words in the old language of the Cherokees. Such vocabulary evokes hieratic or priestly languages like Sanskrit in India, or Latin in Western Europe. With this daring key, events recounted in the Book of the Hopi become crystal clear. Of the various former world ages or epochs recalled by the Hopi, one of them, Guskerza, is specifically said to be an ancient name for which there is no modern meaning. Reading the names of these epochs in ancient Egyptian gives them true significance. They are, one, World destroyed by fire, Tokpela. Two, time long ago, Tokpa. Three, age of abandon, Kuzkurza. And four, age of the strangers from afar, the fourth world or present, Tuakachi. Thus, the creator, Taioa, Uto Aztecan or Tenoan for man, human, people, as in today's Tua, Tiwa, and Toa, has his nephew. Sotuknang and Spider-Woman give life to the innocent first people in an Eden called Tokpela. They are led astray by the talker and Katoya, the handsome one, Satan the deceiver. The animals draw apart in fear and they begin to fight one another in neglect of the Creator's plan. Sotuknang decides to annihilate the world by opening up the volcanoes and raining fire upon it, but not before saving some of the faithful by leading them to a big mound where the ant people live. The Egyptian word for this refuge the Hopi will use to survive two further holocausts translates literally as subsistence in the pyramid of the ants.
pyramid, in fact, means anthill. After the end of Tokpela, world destroyed by fire, the people emerge to the second world called Dark Midnight, but they begin to become preoccupied with materialistic concerns as before. They ignore once again the commandments of the Creator. Satuknang and Spider-Woman seal a select few in the underground world of the ant people and direct the celestial twins to leave their posts at the north and south poles. The earth spins around off its axis, rolls over twice and freezes into solid ice. After it warms and the earth and seas are revived, Satuknang brings the remnants of mankind out of the ant kiva to emerge into the third world, Kuskurza. True to its name, Kuskurza is full of big cities, jewels, copper, tobacco, and speeding vessels called Patuvota. The Bo clan behind these marvels corrupts everybody with wickedness until finally Sotuknang and Spider-Woman intervene and put an end to the age of abandon with a devastating flood. This time the faithful are loaded into reed boats. Spider-Woman guides them to the fourth world, age of the strangers from afar. They dwell in stages on a succession of islands and continue to travel toward the northeast until they reach the new place of emergence. Hopi elders believe this to have been the coast of California, but it may have been at the mouth of the Colorado River on the Sea of Cortez, for the Hopi enact the coming-of-age ritual each year by sending youths on a foot race to collect salt here from a site associated with their ancestors. In former times, there were several large inland seas, and the river system of the region was different. Looking to the west and the south, the people could see, sticking out of the water, the islands upon which they had rested. They are the footprints of your journey, continued Sotuknang, the tops of the high mountains of the third world which I destroyed. Now watch. As the people watched them, the closest one sank under the water, then the next, until all were gone, and they could see only water. See? said Satuknang. I have washed away even the footprints of your emergence, the stepping stones which I left for you. Down on the bottom of the seas lie all the proud cities, the flying Patuvotas, and the worldly treasures corrupted with evil, and those people who found no time to sing praises to the Creator from the tops of their hills. Grandmother Spider once the people make landfall in their new home, the old gods Sotuknang and Spider-Woman depart and leave the emergent Hopi to their own devices. This is a clue to the origin of this cosmic tale, which must have arisen in Sundaland, or island Indonesia, among what the Cherokee called the Wise Ones of Seg. Indeed, throughout the entire southwest Pacific Ocean, Cosmologies focus on the figures of the Father Sky, Sotuknang, and Earth Mother, Spider Woman, the former usually portrayed as warlike and destructive, the latter as the creator of all the arts of civilization that sustain and nourish the people, as, for instance, weaving, basket-making, and agriculture. The central role of the spider as the helper of mankind is preserved in two Cherokee tales. In one, Grandmother Spider Steals the Sun, it is the tiny water spider who swims across the water to an island where the fire burns in order to bring warmth and comfort to her freezing people. 
in another, the same water spider dives deep under the waves to bring up dirt and form the new country inhabited by the people. We may therefore best understand the Book of the Hopi as codifying a sweeping vision of world history created by a founder civilization that came from Eden in the East, to use Stephen Oppenheimer's term. In the mythic underpinnings of this society, there had been an age of man destroyed by volcanic eruptions, Tokpela, followed by global darkness, undoubtedly the fallout of such a cataclysm, Tokpa, the second world. This age, too, is destroyed, this time by ice, with the celestial twins forsaking their axes. Scientists today acknowledge the effect of the poles in causing ice ages. Kurskurza, the third world of abandon, ensues after the melting of the ice, but it quickly ends in floods. Its trademark is the boat, Patuvota, the old worlds having been destroyed by fire, by icy darkness, and by rising waters, the survivors make their way to the fourth and present world, where they are called, in Egyptian, the people from foreign lands. Hohokam, the name of the Southwest's mother civilization, means people from the sea in ancient Egyptian. From this, we may surmise that Egyptian boats made of reed conveyed the islanders to their new home. There the people meet Masao, who becomes their guardian and protector. He is described as black and ugly, scratching out a humble existence in Oribi, cliff town in ancient Greek, on Second Mesa. He declines to be their leader, but gives them permission to stay. First, however, they must start their migrations to the ends of the earth, Paso, another Egyptian word. The name Masao is the same as ancient Egyptian MSW, Libyan. The Hopi say Oribi was his original home, which they translate as rock on high, but which is formed apparently from a Greek word meaning boundary, landmark, covenant stone. Inasmuch as fire has the sense of a group of Indian people their discovery of Masao sitting with his back to them around a fire implies not just one black man or Libyan, but a nation of them. Another second Mesa town, Shinopavi, is translated as place of the black man, although in Egyptian it means fertile land, field of reeds, this being the main metaphor in their religion for the afterlife or paradise. That these Libyans were of the same stock as ancient soldiers and mariners from the Old World is supported by the fact that a later character in the Book of the Hopi, Horny Toad Woman, tells Masao, I too have a metal helmet, in other words, armor. John Red Hat Duke, 1930-2002, was a Cherokee elder enrolled both with the United Kitua Band and Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, a member also of the Kitua Society. He converted to Judaism as a teenager and became a Levite priest, making his aliyah and achieving Israeli citizenship under the law of return. Both full-blood grandmothers spoke the old southern Kitua dialect. He was a strong believer in the lost tribes of Israel theory of American Indian origins. Red Hat came to the attention of Hopi elders at Oribi 
in the 1960s because he apparently fulfilled Hopi prophecy, which stated that one day the true white brother would arrive from the largest Indian nation bringing a new religion from the East and wearing a red hat or cloak. The Cherokee are the most populous Indian nation, and they are located east of the Hopi. The last Kikmongui, or high chief, Mike Lanza, declared the prophecy fulfilled except for one detail. The Bahana was to return the missing corner of the Sun Clan tablet, which John Duke failed to do. Whenever we attempt to introduce such subjects as those covered in this chapter into intelligent conversation with others, we are invariably met with the rejoinder that they are controversial. But in the world of science, it is only opinions that are controversial. Facts are facts. The Bat Creek Stone, the Possum Creek Stone, the Thruston Tablet, the Hopi Sun Clan Tablet, Stallion Crest Helmets, Chunky Stones, Anhematonic Scales in Music, Middle Eastern Haplogroups, Ogham, and a host of other anomalies are facts. What is inferred from each piece of evidence or the whole circumstantial lot is opinion. In conclusion, the Cherokee, like the Hopi, are old souls, old world peoples in the new world. For the modern Cherokee, life still proceeds to the rhythms of drums, rattles, flutes, and ancestral voices. Stoneclad, their armored culture hero, still sings the stirring tales of the past. We hear the dying echoes of a former age that created that ancient music. We've been listening to a chapter on the origins of the Cherokee from Donald and Teresa Yates' book, Cherokee DNA Studies, Real People Who Prove the Geneticists Wrong. The chapter was entitled, The Old World Origins Thesis. You can find all of Donald Yates's and DNA Consultants' books on audible.com. From Ancestors and Enemies to Cherokee DNA Studies, Real People Who Proved the Geneticists Wrong. I hope you'll join us for the next Time Traveler's Suitcase, as there's lots more to explore in the world of DNA. Listen to us on iTunes and from the link at dnaconsultants.com. We'd like to hear your comments. Please direct them to the webpage. The Time Traveler Suitcase is brought to you by DNA Consultants. Check out the webpage at dnaconsultants.com. The program is written by Donald Yates and Pete Ferrand, and I'm host and producer Pete Ferrand. Thanks for listening.